Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to the Movies Podcast for March. Coming up, we look at the latest movie news, the UK Top 10 Blu-rays and the Oscar results. Plus, we interview Michael Darity, the Head of Technical Operations at Universal Pictures, about the restoration of Schindler's List and more on Blu-ray. And joining me on the Movies Podcast tonight is Steve Weathers, Chris McEnany and Simon Crust. Good evening, guys. Evening, Good evening. Phil. Hiya, Phil. So let's kick off the podcast with some uh, movie news. Let's go over to Steve. And uh, what do we have? Well, to be honest, it's pretty quiet in terms of movie news. I mean, it always is just around the Oscar time. Most films get released. If they're going to have any chance of winning an Oscar, they get released just towards the end of the year. And then there's, there's basically the holdover stuff. They slip out in January and February. Uh, but in terms of news that we have got, uh, Chris Cooper has just joined the cast of Spider-Man 2. He's going to be playing Norman Osborn, who was played by Willem Dafoe in the um, Sam Raimi movies. Um, in terms of The Hobbit, there's been some news. I'm not massive surprise this. It was originally slated that the third film would come out in July 2014. It's now being moved to December 2014, which kind of makes sense for a number of reasons. One, I don't think they could have done the post-production and effects in six months. Um, two, it, it, it fits in better with their release schedule. They, you know, they're going to be releasing the Blu-ray of the, the first part of The Hobbit this March. And there's a, you know, a fair assumption that come November, there'll be an extended cut and then the second part in December. So they can do that again next year with, um, with the Blu-ray releases and then leading into December. Um, cinema theatrical release so that that makes sense and not a massive surprise I, I was kind of expecting that and also um sort of good and bad news um bad news is that robert wyatt who directed rise of the planet of the apes which was one of my favorite films of two years ago a real surprise in terms of uh you know it wasn't expected to be that good and it really was that good um unfortunately he's had sort of creative differences with the producers and left that film matt reeves has replaced him who directed cloverfield and let me in so, you know, an interesting choice. Um, but what's good news is that is that Gary Oldman's joined the cast. So at least in terms of the cast, it's looking quite interesting with Gary Oldman on board. Uh, I think Cody Smith-McPhee, who was in Let Me In, is also on, in the cast. Um, but it's a shame that uh, the director of the previous film isn't involved anymore because I really did think he did an absolutely bang-up job on, on Rise of Pandemics. It was a film that was far better than I think anyone could have expected it to be. Um, but I'm still looking forward to Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. And hopefully uh, it'll live up to its uh, previous film and uh, you know, lead us towards uh, the inevitable conclusion, which is, I suppose, Planet of the Apes. Um, but that's it on movie news. Why would it go up to Planet of the Apes? We've already seen that. No, I'm not saying they're going to make Planet of the Apes, but at some point, I suppose. Oh. oh, OK. Where, where, where Planet of the Apes begins. Yeah, OK. <laughs> you know what I, I mean? <laughs> yeah, I do now. Yes, we don't need. Well, actually, no, I wouldn't mind a remake as long as it you know, isn't done by Tim Burton. Well, yeah. God knows exactly. he screwed up the last one. Well, True. production values of Tim Burton's, the makeup design, that'd be okay, but just not Tim Burton directing it and the lousy script that they had for I, that. I one. feel so sorry for uh, for Rick Baker, who did the, some of the best makeup uh, ever. Mm. for those for those for the for the apes and planet of the apes but mark Wahlberg, not a leading man frankly um the script was appalling it made absolutely no sense for starters where did the horses come from you know <laughs> it doesn't make it any bad. sense at all it, it's just one of those films that you know could have been f- at the very beginning they could have looked at the script and said this is rubbish although to be <laughs> honest i, know they, I, I would I know have preferred p- to have seen the oscar baiting lincoln with the actual original tim burton ape 
Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> it would have made it far more entertaining than the otherwise noble worthiness that um, Spielberg he came out with this time. I wasn't a fan, I have to say. We can come back to that later, Chris. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it, though, another, uh, another Apes movie. I mean, the first one, as we've already said, is a, is a, is a great um, reinterpretation of it. Really gave it a shot in the arm. Andy Serkis is the, the king of mocap. Um, and this version, what? It's set 15 years afterwards, isn't it, or something? And um, Caesar has, so far as I know, he's got his own factions. There's a, a last ditch uh, branch of humanity because the, the plagues wiped out most of mankind, apparently. It was hinted at, wasn't it? And uh, yeah, the previous film, yeah. Yeah. And also, you, you have the, uh, the missing um, Mars probe as well, which they gave little hints about, which was quite cool. So that, you know, they are setting up what could well, well be. The, you know, the Mars probe that disappears, that's what lands at the beginning of Planet of the Apes. Yeah, so it could well be a case of, uh, you know, the, the third movie would be taking Taylor's story in, or at least a, a revamped version of Taylor's story. But yeah, I think it should be great. Okay, so uh, moving on. Simon, uh, you're going to take us quickly through the Blu-ray chart for the UK. Uh, this is based on sales, so on you go. Starting at number 10, um, we have Battleship, which I'm guessing is only there now because it's really, really cheap, because it's been out for months and months, hasn't it? It certainly isn't because so, it's any good. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. It's got that kind of Michael Bay mode, but it doesn't have the Michael Bay cheesiness with it. So, I mean, I didn't hate it when I watched it. Um, it it doesn't doesn't bring up that bile and venom that you get when you try to when you watch a Michael Bay film. Although it's in the same kind of mold. Um, anyway, so that's number ten. Number nine, Resident Evil Retribution, which is uh, what the fifth. Yeah, it's the fifth Resident one. Evil film, isn't it? Um, I'm guessing this is probably an amalgamation of the 2D and the 3D discs. I'm hoping so, anyway, because it's amazing that it's got this high, even at number nine, because it's a terrible film. Anyway. It's very disappointing, considering the fourth one actually was quite good fun and, and used the 3D really well. I thought this was... A, I was looking forward to it and was woefully disappointed. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, and there's more to come, so who knows? Yeah, at least it ended on, on a high note, though. You think, I'm <laughs> seeing Washington get trashed. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, number eight. Um, a film that Chris will be reviewing for us, Sinister. Yeah, I don't really know much about that one. Uh, it's another PG-13. Of course you do. Um, but we won't talk about it now because you're going to be reviewing it. Number seven, which is fantastic news and still in the still in the top ten, Dread. Great, because it's a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous film. Fingers crossed it makes enough money in, in sell-through to, uh, to, to warrant a sequel. <laughs> Absolutely. We've done, every, we've done everything that we can on this site. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everything we possibly could. At number six, we have Looper, which was a very, very enjoyable sci-fi time travel Bruce Willis again film. I really, really enjoyed that. Fantastic. Don't, played don't loud. read the review till after you've seen the film. That's all. I <laughs> you, you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you, it's good to go and see this film completely. Even if you've not, it's better to go and see it without even seeing trailers actually. Yeah. Um, because it's 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 a it's a great film. You can watch it more than once, but if you see it fresh first time without knowing anything about it, it's just something something a little bit special. Really, really enjoyed that one. Um, number five, something a bit different here: Africa, which is uh, the BBC's wildlife documentary, which has just finished on BBC HD. Yeah, and um, was, I didn't catch too much of it, but oh, it's absolutely spectacular. brilliant, absolutely brilliant. The cinematography, first mm. class. I mean. Uh, BBC Natural History Unit, they know how to film stuff and, and they spend months and months and months and months just to get the one shot that they're after and uh, you know, that hard work pays off because it just looks absolutely sublime 
Absolutely. The um the they did a most of the end of the episodes, don't they? Have a five or ten minute um, little segment about how they got particular shots. Um, so I'm guessing that the the Blu-ray itself will have more about that. And um, yeah, they do spend months and months doing it. Moving up to number four now, um, Madagascar three. Um, again, it's probably amalgamation of the two D disc and the three D disc. Uh, a surprisingly good sequel. Um, and spectacular use of 3D. Um, I never really took to these films, but they are doing remarkably well um, and indeed are a lot better than a lot of the animation that's coming out at the moment. So have any of you guys seen this one? It's supposed to be really, really good. No, never seen any of them. No? No, the fir- first, yeah, well, it is supposed to be particularly good, this one, and judging by its number four spot on the top ten, fantastic. Oh, it's got uh, a very big colourful box. <laughs> <laughs> it caught my eye and asked it today. Yeah? You didn't purchase it. Oh, no, I don't want that. No. Okay. But he's supposed to be better than the second, actually, and almost as good as the first. So, I mean, that's something. <laughs> where it's, it's sort of playing along the side, like Toy Story. It sort of gets better as it goes along. This is doing the same, working along the same lines. So, mm. unusual for a, for, a, for a sequel to be quite so well appreciated. Unlike number three, Taken 2. How? <laughs> Has it gone cheap or something? It's They're, just decent. Um, the, the film is popular. I know loads in work who, who are quite, you know, smitten with it. I can't believe that I was quite so hostile towards it. But, you know, there's no account for taste, is there? They just say, yeah. People just say it's more of the same. If you like the first one, you'll like this one. But that's not entirely true, as, as we know, because we've seen them both. And the first one is a great, no-holds-barred uh, roller coaster ride. The guy is he's just, you know, a weapon. Yeah. He's a weaponized father on a vengeance mission to get his daughter back. This one just goes stupid. You know, the very fact that they want revenge on him and the, the, the lengths that they go to and, oh, they, they know he's got special skills, a unique set of skills. So they still leave him alone in the room to watch his wife, spoiler heavy here, folks, not that it matters, to watch his wife die. Not that she will. And, um, but half an hour it takes, but we'll, we'll leave you in here with all your skills and know-how. Why would I just sit there and watch him watch her die and then beat him to a pulp? <laughs> That's what you want to do. But no, they don't do it. I've never been able to take taken or taken too seriously after the, the Family Guy spoof. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, where, where Peter picks up the phone and <laughs> I have no specialised skills. I do not know where you are. I have I'll no, never find you. <laughs> I'll never find you. <laughs> So moving okay. on to number two. Uh, okay, Simon. number two spot is a three box set with Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, and Skyfall. Um, I guess this is because it's quite cheap and people really appreciate who uh, uh, Danny Craig now um, and what a great time he's having as Bond. Um, if I mean, I can't believe people haven't got Casino Royale or Quantum yet. Well, I can believe people haven't got Quantum, but why they wouldn't have Casino now? But to get it as a three-box set, I guess, is is the way to go. Um, and at number one, no real surprises, is Skyfall, the uh, single-disc Skyfall, which is a magnificent disc. Not only is it a great film, but it is a demo disc through and through, picture and sound. So I'm not surprised that that's at number one because it's a spectacular Blu-ray and a spectacular film. So why has Skyfall taken so much money? I think it's two reasons, uh, Phil. One, I think the film brilliantly jumped on the back of the whole post, post-Olympics post great to be British. Certainly in this country, it explains why it's the most successful film ever in the UK. I think, I think it just tapped into that at the end of last year, brilliantly. I also think it's actually a really good movie. It's been well-promoted 
there was a bit of demand because obviously it hasn't been a Bond film since uh, 2008. Uh, it's 50th anniversary. Uh, I just think it's it's like a perfect storm of factors that have made it so successful. I mean, 1.1 billion is a, a massively impressive in terms of box office return for a Bond film with no 3D involved, so no extra uh, ticket sales from you know increased ticket sale prices from 3D sales. It's just done it on the back of being a bloody good movie. Um, I think that's the reason why is it's been the case, Phil. I think things like the you know meeting the Queen on the Olympics opening ceremony, all that kind of stuff, it all just built to the point where come November, everyone was queuing up to see it. Well, I've got to say, I mean, it's the first time in, oh, 15, 20 years that I was first in line at the first showing on opening day. Um, so it drew me in. Interestingly, the, the Hobbit's just tipped over a billion dollar mark too. Less worthy, <laughs> I think, in the case of that one. I've got friends who work in cinema chains. One of them's a general manager, and he he was surprised at how poorly the Hobbit um, take up was, and in terms of takings and so on, they didn't do very good business on it. So, there you go. Uh, so Skyfall it won two Oscars. So let's move over to the Oscars. They happened last weekend, and uh, Steve, you're going to take us through this. But I've got to say, best song Adele Skyfall. She was out of tune on the evening. Um, she didn't do a very good performance, and you know, you mean to make, she's in tune on the actual record. Itself. And then to make things worse for her, uh, Dame Shelley Bassey sang uh, before her and absolutely knocked it out of the park. And Adele what was, was Shelley Bassey absolutely. singing Goldfinger, surely Goldfinger. What on the on the Oscar ceremony? Yes, I didn't actually see it. So uh, yeah, <laughs> no, they, right. they did a whole Fifty Years of Bond section. Right, well, that, um, yeah, uh, that's a tough act to follow, isn't it? Bassie yeah, doing Goldfinger. Yeah, well, well, that's it. She had no chance, and she was out of tune, and it's an awful bloody song, but never mind. It's a bloody awful um, song. The interesting thing was, though, that um, for best sound editing, it was a draw between Skyfall and uh, Zero Dark Thirty. It was actually yeah, a tie, quite unusual. Uh, which is quite unusual. So take us through um, the list, Steve. I mean, we talked about this in the last podcast, our predictions, and most of them, luckily for me, in one particular case, came true. Uh, best film was Argo. Um, I, I suspect partly because I actually watched it a couple of days ago. Really good movie, really enjoyable, really, really well made. Uh, ben Affleck's, you know, is turning into a great director, actually, even though he wasn't even nominated for best director. But uh, I think it was probably the least offensive film. I think it won basically because Lincoln was a bit too worthy and boring. Uh, Zero Dark Thirty, a bit controversial, a bit Django, and Django Unchained, a bit controversial. Um, but Argo, you know, it, Hollywood, Hollywood was part of the story, you know, kind of almost a hero in its own right. So I think they like that. It was just well made, entertaining, tense. Um, yeah, and, and it won. And it had been picking up all the awards going into into the Oscars, I mean, BAFTA, um, all the Guild Awards. So it was pretty obvious it was going to pick up Best Film, and it did. Um, it's also got George Clooney as a producer, and everyone loves George. So, you know, that, that was hardly a surprise. What was a surprise before even the awards ceremony was the fact that under Best Director, um, Ben Affleck wasn't even nominated, as, as neither was Catherine Bigelow, neither was Tom Hooper, which is surprising, but yeah, uh, or Quentin Tarantino even. So that I mean that was a surprise. But Ben Affleck won Best Director for just about every other cat, you know, every other award ceremony, and I think um, the host Seth MacFarlane made quite a good joke about the plot being so secret the Academy didn't even know who directed the film, um, because it was kind of strange that that he was snubbed in that way. In terms of who did win Best Director, I, 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 it was Ang Lee. Ang Lee won for Life of Pi. That's his second Academy Award after winning for Brokeback Mountain. Interestingly, both of the times he's won Best Director, the film he made didn't win Best Film. Um, best actor Daniel Day Lewis for Lincoln. That was an absolute shoe in. No surprise there. He becomes the first actor, not actress, but first actor ever to win three Academy Awards for Best Actor. Um, the only actress to have done that is Catherine Hepburn, who's won four, to, who won four times. 
uh, for Best Actress. But uh, Daniel Lewis's third win. Uh, obviously, before that, he won for um, There Will Be Blood and My Left Foot. Best Actress went to Jennifer Lawrence. So, again, no surprise there. Um, Silver Lines Playbook. She's a very popular actress, very good actress, you know, but definitely flavor of the month. And she fell down on her way up to get the, <laughs> up the stairs to get her Oscar. <laughs> Poor girl. Um, a dress best, fell down. Best Supporting Actor, Christoph Waltz for Django Unchained. So, basically, I just imagine he's going to be working on exclusively for Tarantino from now on because that's his second Oscar because he also won for Best Supporting Actor for um, Inglorious Bastards. So, uh, Christoph Waltz there. Again, not a massive surprise. Uh, I think everyone expected that. Best Supporting Actress. Well, <laughs> I started run down naked down Bristol High Street if she didn't win. And Anne Hathaway, of course, walked away with it. She won it. She was going to win that from the moment the trailer played with her singing uh, I Dreamed a Dream. It was inevitable. And sure enough, she picked it up. Um, moving on to original screenplay, Tarantino, who won for Django Unchained. That's his second win after Pulp Fiction. Uh, that's his screenplay went to Argo. Best music went to Life of Pi. Life of Pi actually won the most awards that night. He won four in total. Um, it won for uh, director, um, special effects, cinematography, and for music. Uh, obviously, we mentioned best song. Best cinematography, yeah, that's Life of Pi. Editing went to Argo. Uh, again, probably a, a, quite, quite, quite a justifiable award there because uh, some of the scenes towards the end of that film are unbelievably tense <laughs> to trying to get out of Tehran. So uh, I think the editor definitely earned his corn there. Um, production design went to Lincoln. So Lincoln only won two awards in total, which is surprising when it had 11 nominations going into it. Best costume design went to Anna Karenina, which is Joe Wright's new film, or old film now, I suppose. Visual effects went to Life of Pi, as I said. Uh, hair, hair, makeup and hairstyling, Les Miserables. So lots of wigs in that, presumably. Phil's already mentioned sound editing. And, and best sound mixing went to Les Miserables, which again is hardly a massive surprise considering it's a musical. And they actually sang live on the set. Uh, so overall, big loser. Uh, apart from maybe Lincoln, uh, The Hobbit only had three nominations, didn't win anything. And that's amazing when you consider that 10 years ago, Lord of the Rings films dominated three separate years of Oscars. You know, and by the end of it, they had Return of the King picking up 11, nomina- 11 wins out of 11 nominations. Um, this, this time around, The Hobbit gets absolutely sod all because it's not very good, let's be honest about it, and didn't deserve it. And I also think I have a sneaking suspicion the Academy in Hollywood in general did not like this upstart Kiwi coming along and trying to change things that they've been doing for 100 years. Uh, and good for them, frankly, because nor do I. Uh, so there we go. That's the Oscar rundown. Uh, guys, any comments in there? I've, I've got to say, I've no desire of seeing Life of Pi, even though it's won so many awards. The trailer that I, the trailers that I have seen, it, it no interest to in me whatsoever. Has anybody actually seen it? I know someone who has, and he raves about it. He said it. This is a guy who never swears, and he said it absolutely effing blew him away. And I said, God, you swore then? He goes, No, I, I can't get the film out of my head. He said, the imagery is just a dream. Uh, the emotion is, you know, it, it blew him away. Uh, the music is adorable, exquisite. The acting is f- phenomenal. And uh, it really took him on a journey he didn't expect to go on. It doesn't do what you think it's going to do. Um, and it really gets you by the heart and squeezes. Um, I've also heard the 3D is absolutely incredible in it, too. Uh, I wasn't smitten with the idea of seeing it. But to hear it fr- from his lips, then, yeah... I, I definitely want to have a look at it now. Uh, whether I've got a chance to go to Flix to see it, I, I, I don't think I have now, but it certainly sounds like... It's on Blu-ray in a week. Is it in a week, is it? In the States, anyway. It's out in the States in a week. Oh, well, so. There we go, then. <laughs> I won't bother going to Flix, then. Um, yeah, so where the mouth certainly seems to be um, exceptionally positive, even from people that are grassroots level, not critics and snobs. So, yeah, I'd, I'd have a look at it. Ang Lee normally is pretty good, though, isn't he? He's quite reliable. 
And you've got a tiger called Richard Parker. <laughs> Where'd that come from? Um, yeah, I was trying to explain the plot to Phil, and I was um, actually, yeah, I really can't. <laughs> it, it sounds ridiculous when you try and explain yeah, it, but yeah. it makes a lot more sense when you see it, I think. I, I think the, the one that's really sticking out, well, there's actually two that really stick out there that I, I think I really have to see, and that's Argo and Django Unchained. Um, what about you, Simon? Yeah, I agree. Um, Argo is, is sitting downstairs, ready to be watched, um, and uh, um, Django on Trade is already on um, on uh, what do you call it? Pre-ordered. So uh, yeah, Zero Dark Thirty. I'm, I'm dead keen I've, on that one personally. I've seen Zero Dark, Dark Thirty. It didn't move me in quite the way or excited me that I thought it would do. It was very good, very accomplished, but uh, thought it was. Uh, it's not what I expected from Bigelow. I thought I expected a bit more. Um, action and suspense and really in your faceness, um, but it's got plenty of that. I know it's special ops. There you go, lots of night vision, um, and you're taking out the big man himself, aren't you, Bin Laden? So yeah, it's got plenty of, of grit, but I, I, I was a bit more tepid in response to it than I thought it would be. But having said that, Argo was awesome, uh, great movie. Had a lot of different facets to it. You know, the, the whole Hollywood angle. You know, the, the making a movie thing and the suspense of getting the, the hostages out. Very well made, um, as, as you guys have already said. He's turning into a fabulous director. Well, he's turned into one. He already is. The town was awesome as well. Um, and Gone Baby Gone, did he direct that one? Yeah, he did. And that was yeah, also very yeah, good. So, yeah, yeah, three good movies. So the, the, the guy can, can do it. Um, and he can grow a really good beard as well. Um, I, think, I think the beard suited Ben. He should keep it. I was, yeah. I was about to say during that rundown, I was going to say, oh, poor Ben Affleck, he didn't win Best Director. I thought, what am I talking about? He's good looking, he's loaded, and he's married to Jennifer Garner. More likely to say, poor me, than poor Ben Affleck, frankly. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he'll get over not winning the Best, best Director Oscar. And, uh, and Django Unchained, yeah, no, I love that. I'm not the biggest fan of Tarantino. Uh, it's far too knowing, far too up himself, far too clever. The dialogue goes on forever and ever and ever, and it's all too... No one speaks like that in reality. But having said that, I love Westerns, and I loved his take on this. Uh, it's, you know, it's only a Django movie in the name. It's nothing to do with the old Franco Nero one. Um, and, but you have got a glorious little cameo from, from the great man himself, from Franco Nero, and, uh, which is worth seeing anyway. Great cast all round, some shocking violence in it, uh, and just very entertaining. Uh, so the only other one we really need to talk about is uh, Lincoln. It didn't pick up anything. Um, it's, it's pretty obvious that Steven Spielberg's put an awful lot of work into this. Um, it certainly looked, uh, from what I've seen from the trailers and so on, it looks fantastic. Obviously, the, um, you know, the Oscar went to uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, who looked like Lincoln. Uh, the, the way that guy puts himself into character is unbelievable. And he, he was actually quite funny with his acceptance speech as well, where he he made a joke about how he should have played Thatcher in that movie, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> so um, in, in terms of us here, I mean, I've only seen the trailers. Chris, you, I think you've seen the movie. So what were, you, what were your thoughts? I've seen part of the movie. I walked out. No, that, that's just me being rather, you know, grumpy old man, which I'm, turn, I'm turning rapidly into these days. Uh, you can see... It had Oscar written all over it. That's what his intentions were. It was massively overly worthy. It's a, it's a great topic, obviously. You know, the backdrop of the American Civil War, uh, the Bill of Rights and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, Day-Lewis, eminently watchable, a fabulous actor. He, as you've just said, he, he can portray any character going and really invest his heart and soul into it. And he is a joy to watch. 
Uh, also, good support from Tommy Lee Jones as well. Uh, with a most ridiculous wig on as well and, and massive sideburns. I'm sporting Wolverine mutton chops at the moment, and I was quite jealous uh, of their, their facial foliage. But I just got so fed up of and every single scene seemed to have an endless bloody speech about something. And it was just so patently obvious what they were going for. We want gongs. We want awards. This is so worthy. This is American history. And we're going to explore facets of it which you didn't realize about before. Or maybe you did, but we're going to ram it down your throat anyway. And I gave it about, I didn't even give it an hour, folks, to be honest. It's about a three-hour movie, I think. I think I gave it about 50 minutes. And I went, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, just go to the toilet. Excuse me, excuse me, and never went back. Uh, so maybe, maybe egg on my face, because maybe everything got really great after that. But I know people who've seen it, and they pretty much had the same sort of idea. It, it never, never shut up for a minute. <laughs> so what about you then? What's <laughs> 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 tonight? Oh God. <laughs> okay, so that wraps up uh, the Oscars, and let's stick with uh, Best Director Steven Spielberg, 1993, Schindler's List, and the reason we're moving on to this is that Schindler's List is being released on Blu-ray and it finishes the 100-year um, Universal campaign that they ran all last year and there was 13 titles brought out um, where they'd done complete restorations and Schindler's List has had a complete restoration and we were lucky enough to speak to the gentleman responsible and he's Michael Darity from uh, Universal, he's the vice president there and uh, we had the opportunity, myself and Steve, to sit down with him and ask him about his career and uh, restoring these universal classic movies. Michael, I guess the first question that I need to ask is uh, a little bit about your history. Our, our users might not know um, what your role involves. So could you give us a little bit of your history and your background? Sure. Um, I've been here almost 27 years. I'm in charge of the, the groups that are responsible for creating our content, storing it, preserving it, restoring it, um, and our worldwide library. Um, so I'm the one that's kind of responsible for the library. How do you get involved in something like that, like film res restoration and um, you know, making sure that the assets are, are well looked after? Well, uh, our films are our legacy, and we want to make sure that they're preserved you know, for future generations. You know, we have an ongoing, we, have an inve we invest in an ongoing preservation and restoration program to, to ensure that our content is preserved. You know, for around this specific title in Schindler's List, um, last year was Universal's 100th anniversary. Um, there were 100 titles that we, um, we as a company, uh, decided were, were an example of the, the films that best represented the history of Universal. Um, Schindler's List is one of those films. Um, it was one of the 13 films that was identified to, to really go back and you know, create a new restored version of um, from a film standpoint um, and create new negatives, new, new 35 millimeter negatives and prints and digital cinema versions and high definition versions for Blu-ray. Um, all of our other films that we worked on last year released last year, but because Schindler's has a 20th anniversary this year, it was held um, and is now being released. And Michael, you mentioned 13 films that were identified. What films were they that were identified for very specific restoration? Last year we did we restored All Quiet on the Western Front, The Birds, Buck Privates, Dracula, both the English and the Spanish version, Frankenstein, Frankenstein, Bride of Dracula. We did Jaws, Out of Africa, Pillow Talk, The Sting, 
To Kill a Mockingbird and Schindler's List. I know this is maybe putting you on the spot a little bit, but out of those 13 that, that you've overseen the restoration on, uh, which one really sticks out for you? I'm extremely proud and happy of all of them. I think we, we did an excellent job last year. We, we, we spent the time and effort and investment to, to restore them all. Um, we were very happy with Jaws. We loved the way Jaws came out last year, but um, I, I don't, you know, from a restoration standpoint, uh, the work that went into All Quiet on the Western Front or the, the monster films, you know, or To Kill a Mockingbird were, was just as, you know, intense as, you know, doing any of the other films. So, I mean, some of these, you know, we're dealing with elements that are from the 1930s and 40s and 50s, and um, all of them have, cha you know, challenges in, in terms of, you know, the quality of the elements from that era um, how we had to mix and match different elements due to da some damage, um, how we had to digitally fix and correct and restore things. So, um, you know, I think, you know, it just is a, you know, it emphasizes the commitment on behalf of, you know, the company and Universal Pictures that these films, you know, are our legacy and we want to make sure that, you know, um, we're taking care of them. Uh, you mentioned Jaws, which I have to say I, I have watched, and it was absolutely spectacular. On on the disc itself, there's a brief uh, featurette about the restoration process, in which um, they mention using uh, technical wet gate scanning um, on the negative. Perhaps you could just quickly explain to the listeners exactly what a wet gate scan is. Yeah, so on Jaws, we used a wet gate scanner. The Jaws negative, um, though it was uh, uh, you know a negative that was in a condition that was you know, similar to others for its, you know, its type and use, had a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of light scratches. So in, ab in order to correct those, um, we used a, a, a wet gate scanner, and the wet gate is the, the, the film goes through the, the liquid prior to it being scanned, and the liquid puts a coat, um, a thin coat, and, and basically fills in the scratches. So when the film is scanned, it is scanned um, basically without those scratches or at least minimizes those scratches. And then we can use our digital tools afterwards to correct anything that the scanning did not um, help with. Obviously, we're, we're here to talk about the release of Schindler's List. It's been through the restoration process. How involved was that? It's, it, it is a fairly recent movie but what challenges did you find in restoring it for Blu-ray? Yeah, it, it is a more recent movie, and the film definitely is in much better condition than films that are 30, 40, 50 years old. Um, what we were able to do with this restoration was really scan, use the original negative, which had never been used before for any of the transfers, um, scan it at, a, a again, a 6K resolution, um, downsample that to 4K, and then we worked entirely in a 4K resolution. Um, what we're able to get is a much finer detail, um, detail in the clothing, um, skin textures, the hair, um, is so much more, uh, evident. And th then it allowed us to focus on really the contrast levels, maintaining the cinematography's, cinematographer's contrasty look, um, while managing black levels and making sure we had pure blacks, um, previous transfers because of video had a little bit of, um, what we call, you know, polluted blacks. They weren't true black blacks. So we were able to get really good blacks, um, manage the highlight levels, you know, the highlights that come through the lamps and the candles and the, the uh, windows, 
the backlit windows and the stark outdoor uh, scenes, we were able to manage those, um, which are sometimes problematic in video. Um, we paid a great deal of attention to, in, to ensuring that everything was done properly, really gave it a, a, that film look, made sure we maintained the grain, um, but, but tried to control it where we could, any image stabilization. Um, and then I think one of the things that we really worked on was trying to improve the red, the red dress sequences. Um, if you're familiar with the movie, The Little Girl with the Red Dress, it, those were opticals. Those were film opticals 20 years ago, and they had limitations. Um, anytime she walked behind something, if there was a tree or a person or a, a building or something, it affected that optical. And the, the red... Uh, sometimes get muted, sometimes would get, would go away, and um, so was we had the ability now digitally to really um, make sure that that red dress stayed red through the whole thing, um, and we paid a lot of attention on doing that. Um, and then you know this film was um, you know Mr. Spielberg was intimately involved in it, so it was working with him to get something that you know that he was really comfortable with. I was actually going to ask you, Michael, how, how involved uh, Steven Spielberg was on, on both Schindler's List and, and the Jaws uh, restorations. He's been involved in all of the um, transfers and remastering we did, so G Jaws and E.T. Jaws, probably a little bit, if I, if I had to rate his involvement, um, you know, Schindler's probably at the top, Jaws in the middle, and E.T. probably um, not as much. In terms of, you know, E.T. came in a few times, would see, um, you know, how we were progressing and, and provide some feedback. Um, Jaws a little bit more in that he would be in a little bit more than he was and provide a little more feedback. Um, Schindler's uh, intimately involved, um, looked at the whole picture with us, um, went through every scene, um, came in several times, looked at our tests and helped us make decisions on where we were contrast-wise and black levels and light levels and the red dress sequences and then looked at the entire film at the end and and approved it. Um, same similar comments to Jaws that the film never looked as good as it looks today, even you know, better than it did in the theaters. So, Michael, it's it's a very difficult film um, to sit through. Uh, obviously, you know, the subject matter makes it so. When you're re restoring something, I, I take it that that you really have to step back from the material and look at it technically. And I'd imagine you've gone through the film quite a number of times now. This is an extremely impactful film. I don't know that you can step away from it. Um, I, don't, I don't really, you know, again, I didn't work on it daily. I have teams of people that do, and I know that they feel probably the same way. Um, it doesn't matter how many times you see this. Um, it impacts you. It doesn't matter how many times you see the same scenes over and over again. Um, I don't think you get callous to it. I don't think you get to a point where you just go, well, I'm just technically looking at whatever I'm looking at. Um, you walk away from that, I think, every time um, with some impact. Um, and I don't, I mean, I think, you know, I, I hadn't seen it, you know, since it originally released 20 years ago. Um, you know, when we watched it in, in its entirety, the the before we started the restoration with Stephen and then looked at it at different parts with, with Stephen as well as I looked at a bunch of sequences. Every time you see them, it has some impact on you and you you just you just shake your head and go, oh my God. Um, and I don't think it's any different. So, you know, our, our hope is that, you know, we were able to show this and present this to people who have not seen it in either a very long time or have never seen it because um, it is an impactful film.
Um, you mentioned, obviously, apart from the bookends and the red dress sequence, uh, Schindler's List is in black and white, shot in black and white. Is, is the process different when you're dealing with a black and white film to when you're dealing with uh, a color movie in terms of perhaps grading, um, that kind of stuff? Yeah, no, the process is basically the same. Um, everybody, you know, sometimes thinks that black and white, oh, because it's not color, that color correction process is, must be easier. And in most cases, it, it isn't. Um, you know, it, it's much harder to... Yeah, I don't say much harder, but it definitely is hard to manage contrast levels and to get the right brightness and the right detail and and not in, induce enough grain. Black and white is not necessarily easy, uh, easier than working with color. So, um, you know, it's a process. It's you take your time. You do it right. Um, you know, we want to make sure that that you know this is, again. This is you know one of our our legacy titles and. We wanted to invest in doing this right. We think that the quality, I'm not sure if you've seen the Blu-ray yet, but we think that the quality of this Blu-ray, um, and compared to you know other HD versions we had, even though the consumer hasn't seen an HD version yet, um, we know we've had other HD versions that have been used for uh, license distribution. Um, this one is so much better. Um, but I think that the, the consumer on the quality side um, will be very happy with what is put out and then you know we don't want the we don't want the restoration work that we did to to have any effect on you know the, somebody just watching the film. Um, the film speaks for itself. Um, we just wanted to give the best quality we could. Talking about quality, um, we are inevitably heading towards a 4K future when it comes to uh, video. Uh, you said that you did the restoration at 6K and downrezzed that to 4K. Uh, are you are you thinking about the future when you're doing your restorations? Yes, we are. So um, this film was done entirely in 4K um, for two reasons. One, it, it yielded us the best results for a Blu-ray, but it also protected us for the next round. Um, whatever that next round is, whether you know ultra high def, um, well, you know 4K display, um, we, this film will not need to be redone again for that. Um, It'll, it, it won't need to be redone until whatever the skip is, you know, if it's 8K or whatever that, that next one is. But we're, we have, you know, this film ready if, if and when 4K comes. Um, when you're doing a restoration, uh, obviously uh, part of the process is to repair damage to the negative and that kind of thing. But is there ever a temptation to improve things in the process? Because you've got so many tools that are available to you now that you, you could make significant changes to a film, couldn't you? Um, yeah, and that is uh, that definitely is not our intent. Our intent is really always to preserve the artistic intent of that filmmaker. Um, you know, we struggle a little bit sometimes. You know, we know that we can, you know, fix something, change something. Um, we know that the intent of the filmmaker. I mean, you know, we're, we're dealing with our restorations right now, where, you know, we have, you know, film that is missing frames that we know those frames were you know, missing because of damage or because of other reasons. Um, or, you know, we'll see a camera, uh, something that is a camera problem that we go, oh, you know, could we fix that now? Um, we really manage each of those things on its own and look at them um, and try to make a determination. If we have the filmmaker with us, then we want to run that by the filmmaker and get their opinion. Um, but a lot of these older older films, we don't have filmmakers. Um, but our intent truly is not, we don't want to subject 
Um, we know what the films are supposed to look like when they were released, and you know we don't want to change that. I mean, that's that's the history of of film. And Michael, just to wrap up on our interview here, can you talk about any of your upcoming projects? Yeah, we are currently. I mean, we have a commitment to uh, restoring on the film level three to five films a year. Um, this year, we're working on Touch of Evil. Um, High Plains Drifter, and then the 1944 version of Double Indemnity. We'll probably add another title or two to this the second half of the year, but that's what we're currently working on um, right now. Well, Michael, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us here at AV Forums. It is appreciated, and uh, we're really looking forward to seeing Schindler's List. Great. Thank you, guys. Appreciate your interest, and enjoy the film. Uh, so Steve, quite an interesting conversation there. Lots of uh, some of our favourite movies were restored last year by Universal. It looks like Michael and his team's done a really good job, uh, especially with stuff like the Monsters box set and so on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, we all I, I watched all the Monsters movies last year. I thought they did a fantastic job. They looked brilliant. Uh, same with Jaws. I mean, absolutely knockout. Uh, a restoration of that film considering its age and considering as he mentions in the interview you know the, the more successful a film is the more they use that uh, negative to strike uh, uh, prints and therefore the more damage that it gets so they had a lot of work to do on that i think what was interesting was when he was talking about uh, how involved spielberg was and how he was more most involved in schindler's list than jaws and hardly evolved at all in the restoration of et which i also thought was, was a very good restoration um and also uh, go back to the point you made in the interview phil about um you know, having to sit through Schindler's List over and over again as you restore it, and it's quite a powerful movie. I saw that in the cinema in 93, and I, I've owned it on Laserdisc and DVD since, and haven't watched either of them because I couldn't, you know, I couldn't sit through the film a second time, basically. It was so powerful and so, you know, parts of it are so shocking. Uh, I think now, though, I will, I'm, I'm gonna, I've ordered the Blu-ray and I will watch it. So I think 20 years is long enough now to, to sit down and watch it again. And um, from memory, I remember Ray Fiennes being absolutely unbelievable in it. Um, as Amon Goeth. So I'm looking forward to seeing how they how the restoration has, has worked for Schindler's List. I mean, he mentions in the interview about the little girl in the red dress. Um, of course, it's quite a famous sequence where the only bit of colour is that red dress. Um, and obviously, at the time, it was an optical effect, uh, which is, was difficult to do. And now with modern technology, I mean, you could do it, Phil, couldn't you, with the software you've got on your laptop? Uh, is that class as digital manipulation, though? <laughs> well, I did actually ask him in the interview. Um, one question I did ask is, is there a temptation when you're doing this? Because you, there's so many tools at your disposal now when you're when storing a film. There's a temptation or an, a possibility that you could make significant changes to the film. And whilst maybe with Spielberg sat next to you, you're not going to do that. With a lot of films they're working on, you know, the, the original creators are long dead. And, you know, and there's, they, 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 he did say that there are scenes where you can see maybe a reflection of the camera or something like that. You know, and you can fix all this stuff now. Question is, do you, or do you leave it as it was made, mistakes and all? And I'm very much of the opinion you should leave it as it was made, mistakes and all. Obviously, you know, fix any damage to the negative, but I'm, I'm very opposed to, after Lucas, frankly, I'm very opposed to fiddling with the film post, you know, after the, after the fact. I think once it's out there, you can restore it, make it look as good as it possibly can look, repair damage to the negative, scratches, that kind of stuff. But you shouldn't be changing, make, correcting mistakes that were there on the set that day when they shot it, because, you know, that's just part of the film now. So where so, do you stand on the, uh, on um, Jason, Jason the Argonauts? The Harpies, the Harpies with the, uh, the wire removal. They removed the wires. Yeah. Uh, you can say the same thing on, should you remove the wires on, on Wizard of Oz on the monkeys? Because you can see well, them. The thing is, you know, especially with, uh, with Jason the Argonauts, and probably a lot of other movies from that, from that period, if they had the tools to remove things like that, which you weren't meant to see, um, they would definitely have done so. Harry Harryhausen himself, 
certainly agreed. If he could have removed them from sight, he definitely would have done. Now, of course, you've got the thing about nostalgia and charm, you know, the innocence of the old vintage effects. Yeah, and it's pretty much in the eye of the beholder. You know, if you like it being there, then great. But and we've all got double standards on this. I like seeing the film as it was originally shown in a lot of cases. But again, in Jason the Argonauts' case, I was pretty made up to see that they'd fixed it, well, roughly fixed the day-for-night scenes, and they'd removed those, uh, those, those cables and wires, uh, because it, it did add to the, you know, the suspension of disbelief for that sequence, and it looked pretty good. Um, so I was kind of happy with that. Interesting and very valid point you made about Schindler's List there, though, Steve, because uh, about not wanting to watch it again or being reluctant to watch it again. I've only seen the film once when it first came out, and I vowed I'd never, ever see it again. Not because it's a bad film, it's a fantastic film, but I did not, I did not enjoy watching it. You know, it, it, it upset me. Um, it will do again. And it kind of, it's kind of upsetting in, in a way because they've spent so much time and effort restoring this, and they're going to bring it out on Blu-ray. And I'm, I'm almost certainly not going to you know, sample how good an effort they've made because I, I just don't want to see that story again. I've seen it once, and I know it, and I've, I've it got to me. say, I've I've seen it once in the uh, at the cinema, and I saw it again on Laserdisc, and I haven't seen it since then. So what's that? That's that's probably about 15, 16 years since I last saw it, and there's scenes in that film that I can remember vividly. Um, yeah. I just have to think back to, to to that title, and there's certain scenes are just popping in my head. Um, it 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 is a disturbing film to watch, but at the same time. I definitely think it's, a, a, and I said this at the time when I saw it the first time round. I, I thought, well, that needs to be shown in every high school in of this course. country uh, because it, it's such a powerful message. It's educational. It's marvellous filmmaking. There's no denying that. Uh, very emotive, fabulously well acted. Cinematography is absolutely scintillating. Um, yeah, it's got everything you want from majestic, epic movie making, but it's just a subject matter. Uh, I don't think I could sit through it again. I, I certainly applaud the fact that it's it, it's so highly regarded, and everybody should see it at least once in their lives. Um, but no, I, I'd struggle with it again. There's many other films away I wouldn't watch again as well. But uh, and it's funny that I've just been slating you know Spielberg for Lincoln, uh, and again another worthy story which probably needs to be told in some circles. But Schindler's List is certainly one. Which is uh, it's a more driving, more emotive, far more important saga that should be related to you know almost everybody. Yeah, I mean, I the generations should never, ever, ever forget what happened. Absolutely. Um, and uh, of course, you know, we're now what 2013. We're we're some distance away in terms of history now. You know, there's generations being brought up that don't know what happened, and it's important to have material like that that you can say, look. Th- this happened. Don't ever let it happen again. Do you think we should make Mel Gibson sit down and watch it? <laughs> <laughs> I think, Phil, you made a point to me after the interview, um, and I think it's very true, which is I don't think Spielberg's ever been the same uh, director since he made Schindler's List. He did Jurassic Park and then Schindler's List, and there was quite a long break before he did Lost World, four years. But after Schindler's List, his films became a lot, they were far more serious Exactly. Um, far much darker. A lot of them were much darker. I mean, he did Amistad, and, and even even Lost World was a much darker film than um, than 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 Jurassic Park. Um, 
I mean, War of the Worlds was was I mean, Munich. He's done some very, very uh, you know heavy movies since. Well, exactly. And I think War of the Worlds is a great case in point because the people expected that to be some sort of laser beams and spaceships and lots of like action all the way through, but it was just a parable about you know post nine eleven destruction affecting your community, your family, how it hits home to you personally. It wasn't about you know um, intergalactic warfare. It was how it hits home, and so he, he definitely has been uh, changed. I think he's become a braver filmmaker. He'd done all the um, the entertaining stuff, you know, the, the glorious, you know, um, sci-fi charm of E.T., um, Back to the Future, all that sort of thing, and then he, he certainly matured. Schindler's think, List, uh, Private Ryan. Well, I was going to say because obviously Schindler's List won Best Film, Best Director in '93. And he won Best Director uh, in 99 with Schindler's List. I'm sorry. He won Best Director in 99 with Saving Private Ryan. But, of course, didn't win Best Film. Um, It went to Shakespeare in Love, a film I think everyone now has completely forgotten. A totally, you know, mediocre movie that I've totally forgotten about. Saving Private Ryan, one of the most powerful and certainly one of the most influential films of the last 15, 20 years in terms of anyone who shot a war film after Private Ryan. I mean, and particularly Ridley Scott, I've got to say, has copied that kind of style, that very yeah. stylistic approach to it. It's been a massively influential, didn't win best film. And I know Spielberg to this day can't talk about that because I think he's still that he didn't win. <laughs> and he deserved it. It was by far and away the best film that year. And um, when Harrison Ford read out Shakespeare in Love, you could see the look on his face like, huh? <laughs> What else was in the running that year, though? I mean, yeah, uh, you, you compare Saving Private Ryan to Shakespeare and Love. Yeah, there's a, there's a huge. Dis- I can't remember top of my head what what else was in running back in '99. But I, I'd be I, I I watched that so many live. You know, like I know that in the morning it was just no way that Private Ryan shouldn't have won that. It Private won every, Ryan, it won everything else at that point. Beginning, fantastic conclusion. But the problem a lot of people had with it, and myself included at the time, was that massive Leviathan middle section where you just didn't care. Um, or seemingly didn't care. It's a film that, as a, as a whole, has grown upon me over the, the last few years. And I've watched it a good, a good few times now. Obviously, you know, the, the action scenes are what you remember most of all. But there's a lot of subtlety to it as well. A lot of subtlety in the ensemble cast. Some people don't get much to say or do. But they all resonate. And that's what I found more and more as I've watched it, you know, over the last few years, which I didn't pick up on first time round. So I think... As, as worthy and as important as it seemed, certainly it seemed for, for him to make that endeavour and to create warfare in such an in-your-face, you know, brutal and realistic manner. Um, but people just got bogged down by the lack of action in during the, uh, the middle third of the movie. Well, I, I think the thing about the Oscars was that, you know, it was winning, you know, like, best cinematography, best editing, best screenplay, best director. You know, when you, when you go through that, you think, okay, well, he's got best film in the bag. There's no question this is going to win best film now. When mm. it happened, when it didn't win, it, it, was a, it was genuinely probably the biggest upset since Driving Miss Davy, Daisy won in. Sorry, the biggest upset since Driving Miss Davy, Daisy. <laughs> <laughs> he's not going to get it, is he? <laughs> the biggest upset since Driving Miss Daisy won back in 1989, which uh, also, interestingly, was the first time of the first film since then, so Argo was the first film since Driving Miss Daisy, which won Best Film without even being nominated for Best Director. So just to round up on, on this segment about the restoration of films, and, and we've covered some of the points, but I think the, the promising thing that I got from Michael during that interview was the fact that 
they're trying very hard to keep the director's uh, vision of of what the film should look like and and also the technique that they're using they're not doing things like grain removal and that is the biggest hot potato i think when it comes to um you know working on old films there's the temptations there like he said in the interview and we've seen some films come out where they've used dnr to excess and just taken film grain completely out of it and and let's face it at the end of the day you know the vast majority of films uh, certainly from that period were shot on film were shot on film that gave it a grain and the grain is part of part of the image Absolutely, it's part of the, the the cinematographers and directors work together in tandem to give that film a look, and the grain is part of that look. And um, Fox could learn an awful lot, couldn't they, <laughs> by listening to that interview? I was also really? quite pleased to hear. It's quite good to hear that they were they're working in 4K. So you know, if anyone is wondering about you know 4K and, and content for 4K, you know they're, they're working on all these all these restorations. Um, from films shot on 35 mil, you know, being restored at what well, he think he said it says in the interview, scanned at 6K, and we're, and then, and then actually the workflow was done at 4K. So you're having the, you know these 4K masters ready for when, fingers crossed, uh, we start getting some kind of 4K delivery system for the home. Yep. So uh, interesting stuff, but we have to end there. We have run out of time. Uh, so my thanks to Chris, Simon, and Steve. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Phil. And don't forget, we uh, we have a podcast every week of the month on the 7th is the Movies Podcast, which you're listening to. The 14th is the Games Podcast, 21st, the Home Cinema Podcast, and on the 28th is the Podcast Extra. Also, don't forget, if you have any comments about what we've discussed this evening or uh, any thoughts on film restoration or the Oscars or whatever we've discussed this evening, then head over to the podcast forum and leave your feedback underneath this podcast. This is Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening and we'll see you again next month. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content including sound clips and music is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.